I hope there are no Uticuses here today. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we can look at it together. We pray that it would have the effect of making us more like Jesus and also that it would bind us more closely to one another uh, as your Holy Spirit works among us. We thank you for what you've done already for us to bless us today. We anticipate more blessing now in these next few moments. We pray these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, uh, Debbie came to church early because she was going to practice with one of the music teams. And I followed her. After the service was over, we went out together. Most everybody had left. And her back left tire was flat as a pancake. Thoughtfully and kindly, I invited her to ride home with me, <laughs> which she did. But, and then we came back early and uh, noticed after we had changed the back tire that the front left tire was also soft. And isn't that the way life goes? Um, things happen to us unexpectedly. And they take us in directions we never man uh, imagined. And so how do people respond in these kinds of circumstances? How do you respond when some unexpected thing you weren't planning, you don't really like, happens? Well, people kick the dog. Uh, they try to blame somebody. They um, say, you know, in our case, what was the matter with that mechanic? We just had the car in there. Why didn't he know that tire was going to go flat? Or we can make these unexpected things all about ourselves. What's wrong with me? Why do these kinds of things always seem to happen to me? And so one of the needs that we really have is to be able to see beyond the interruptions, if you will, uh, in such a way that these frustrations get us to hope, to be able to live in a way that we anticipate God's blessing in the future. And especially that's the case when we're staring death in the face. So our theme today is finding hope in the face of death. And we're looking at those verses that David just read for us, Acts chapter 20, verses 3 to 14. If you have a Bible and can turn to it, Acts 20, verses 3 to 14. And in ordering uh, these uh, verses, in ordering Paul's thoughts, or, or, in ordering Luke's thoughts, what does he do? Well, he certainly underscores, first of all, the idea that sometimes things just don't go the way we want them to go. And he, he points out the frustrations of life. And then after he does that, he talks about God's plans for us. God's plans for us are really centered in matters of life and death. And then finally... He shows us how the Lord comes to us at the point of our deepest needs um, to give us hope, even when things seem very gloomy. Well, sometimes things just don't go the way we want them to, right? And look at verses 3 through 6. That was the case with Paul. Now, last week we noted that there are Gentile idol worshipers that cause a riot in Ephesus and Paul kind of gets caught in the middle of that. 
Well, God's strange providence is on display again in these verses. This time now, Paul has been in Greece for three months. He's about to sail for Syria, and all of a sudden he finds out that the Jews now are out to get him. Gentiles last time, Jews this time, and so he changes his plans, and he goes through Macedonia. What is the Lord doing? That's what happens, I think. We have that kind of question, and what is the best way for us to respond to what the Lord is doing? Well, obviously, the Lord is changing Paul's plans. Look at verses 4 through 6. And as you think about it, Paul's trying to serve the Lord. He's doing his best here. And all of a sudden now, more people are after him. This story might give pause to anybody that is thinking about following Jesus. And particularly, it would give pause if somebody were interested in ministry, there is no question about it. It is costly. But there's one takeaway here. There is something more costly, and that is not following Jesus. Follow Jesus, and there's unspeakable joy later. Don't follow Jesus there's unspeakable misery later. And so wherever you are in your spiritual journey today, would you please consider your relationship to Christ? Won't you surrender to his lordship for the better life that he promises in relationship with himself? John Calvin comments on this passage and he says that uh, Paul stands for, before us here as kind of an example um, of faithfulness so we don't get weary when there's a bumpy road in front of us. Well, it's not only the case that Paul's plans change, but it's also the case that what happens to him also impacts those that were closest to him, and that's the way it is with us. When our plans change, it often impacts the people that are closest to us. Now, you'll notice in verses 4 and 5 that Paul is not traveling alone. He has mobilized a missionary team to accompany him. And it's made up of eight people. You'll see them listed there in verse 4. Sopater, Aristarchus, Secundus, Gaius, Timothy, Tychicus, Trophimus, and one more. Look at verse 5. Who's the other one? Verse 5 says... These went on ahead and were waiting for us. Luke. Luke's the other one. And so Paul and eight others, nine altogether. Now, why would Paul have gathered this group? I mean, it's not like they're going off to dig wells or build a house or some other hands-on project. Well, I think what Luke is doing is he's not, only showing us, he's not only showing us what happened, but he's also showing us how Paul did ministry. 
What's the core of the Christian life? It's a relationship with Jesus, following Jesus. And you can't go very far in the Christian life unless you're also related to other people that are following Jesus. Christians being together. You see references to it again and again and again. Be imitators. There are one another verses. Um, we see those emphases throughout the New Testament and you kind of get the impression that the Christian life is caught as well as taught. There's something about rubbing shoulders with other believers that just blows wind into our sails. Jesus said it this way. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. When a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. He will be like his teacher. He doesn't say when a disciple is fully taught, he'll think like his teacher. He says he'll be like his teacher. And certainly we see that kind of dynamic at work, don't we, in the lives of little kids? Who are the biggest influencers? Their parents. Oh, you act so much like your mother. You're just like your father. We see it all the time, right? Now, let's note that Paul did not include everyone who wanted to go with him. Remember Acts 15? He and uh, Barnabas separate because of a difference about John Mark. And it looks as if Paul chose these people because he wanted them to be with him so that they could become like him. We're not told that in the Bible, but that certainly seems to be an appropriate inference. Or let's say it at a more practical level when it comes to us and those with whom we interact. How do we decide how to spend our time? As with Paul, there are lots of people that clamor for some piece of our lives. And what the Bible teaches is that you work with people who are faithful, available, teachable. We only have one life to live. You might as well get the biggest bang for the buck out of it, right? Uh, so let's think about investing ourselves in people who are faithful, available, teachable. My dad pastored churches in part by reaching out to those that were on the fringe of society. Um, three elderly widows come to my mind. Uh, Mrs. Crandall, Mrs. Quinn, and... Um, Oh yeah, Mrs. Smith, those three. And sometimes he would take me along when he would visit them. And um, though I was untrained, I was very aware as a little boy that dad was not investing himself in what we would call the beautiful people. These were down and out women that really struggled to make ends meet. And he was there to do what he could to bring Christ to bear in their lives and bring the resources of the church to bear on their situations. So think with me a little bit. What are some of the unexpected ways in which the Lord had le has led you? How has he taken you places that you never would have imagined you were going to go so that you could grow in him and be a blessing to people you never expected to meet? As I think about my own self, I think, yeah, so I go to seminary, and then where do I go? To a kind of upper crust 
congregation as an intern in New Jersey. And then from there to a farming community in Chester County. And then from there to business and banking execs in Wilmington. And then from there, the upper Midwest to Titletown, Green Bay. And after that, Southwest United States. And along the path, the Lord gave me opportunities to rub shoulders with people nationally and internationally that I never expected to touch. Well, let's just summarize this much, this way. Sometimes things don't go the way we want them to go, and those experiences can challenge our hope, how we look at the future. But let's look at the next section, verses uh, 7 and following. God's plans for us are matters of life and death. Paul arrives in Troas. His team has had to make some adjustments because he's made some adjustments. And uh, they get, they're ahead of him. They and Paul are now gathered with believers on a Sunday. Interestingly, by this early point in church history, Christians are meeting together on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, just the way we do. And Paul talks to them until midnight. Now, what's the Lord doing here? He is giving Paul, and he is giving those that have come as part of his team, opportunity to invest in the lives of those with whom they're worshiping that night. They get to explain what new life in Christ is all about. They get to rub shoulders with other believers. But now look at verses 8 and 9. Sometimes the Lord reminds us of the sobering reality of death. As the story goes, everybody is up on the third floor. And they're eating and they're talking and they're listening to Paul. And Paul goes on and on, we're told, for a long time. Um, there are oil lamps in the room, and we say to ourselves, why would Luke include that detail? Here's what one of the commentators says. He says, I think he includes that detail because maybe some of these things were torches. But they're in this upper room, and it's night, and you can imagine that those flames made it sort of a sultry environment. And that leads us to this next thing. It might have been difficult for somebody who had had a hard day's work to stay awake. And so here's Eutychus. And he's sitting in a window. And uh, he's over, he falls asleep, and then he falls three stories down, and he falls to his death on the ground. Now try to imagine yourself in that situation. Maybe Eutychus is your best friend, or maybe he's your close cousin, or... Um, maybe you're sitting right next to him or maybe you're his uncle or his aunt or his mom or his dad and in an instant he is gone and it's dark and there are cries of fear and anguish and in the semi-darkness people then rush down the stairs three levels to the ground and there they find Eutychus lifeless body 
What's it like? Don't you feel hope, helpless in that situation? If only I'd pay more attention to him. I knew he was dozing. Why didn't I think about this? And maybe guilt and shame and some hopelessness intrudes into your thinking. Wonder, when was the last time you were around somebody who was really sick, close to death? Didn't it remind you of your own mortality? And isn't that exactly part of God's plan for you? He wants you to take life seriously. Death gives us a chance to consider ultimate realities like who am I before God? And what's my life's purpose? And where am I headed? And what, it, what is it like for me or for other people to face death without Christ? And in the face of illness and death, then, we get to pray for those around us in need, those close to us, and others far away, and we also get to pray about our own needs. Mrs. England was a member of our church in her 90s. And one early fall day, her daughter called and said, she has pneumonia, she's here at home with me, things are not going well, could you please come? And I did. And I was glad to be with them, but felt so inadequate. And in a very short time, she was gone. I loved Mrs. England. And I missed her. But I looked forward in hope because Mrs. England belonged to the Lord. She was in his presence. And it would only be a matter of time between then and when I would be united with her. Well, what have we seen so far? Sometimes things don't go the way they want and those bumps in the road can challenge our hope in the future. And God's plans are matters of life and death for us. Now let's look at the last section. The Lord's grace gives us hope in the face of death because his grace is powerful to meet our needs. Verse 10, Paul goes down the stairs, there's Eutychus on the ground, dead as a doornail. Paul bends over him, picks him up, and he says, don't worry, he's not dead. And you think, wow, what a turnaround. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, Luke, the doctor, has pronounced Eutychus dead, and, Luke goes, and Paul goes down, he says he's not dead. And you wonder, who's the better physician? But the Lord amazingly brings Eutychus back to life. And this narrative strikes me as funny in two senses. Uh, at least this. Why is there only one reference in the concordance, in your Bible concordance, to the name Eutychus? It seems to me as if this would have been a big deal thing. And we would want to make regular reference to him. Only one. And after he comes back to life, there is not another word spoken about him except that well, some people were comforted as a result.
And on the surface, he almost seems to be like a transition, uh, the midpoint of a two-part sermon. Paul speaks until midnight, and then Eutychus dies, and then Paul speaks until daybreak. It's funny. And do you know what the name Eutychus means? Lucky. Here's Mr. Lucky. Funny, isn't it? And he comes back to life, and in his resuscitation, he brings no little comfort to those that are around him. Paul and his team then go on. Please look at verses 13 and 14. Paul and his team then go on in faith. Now just think about the stories that Paul's associates had to tell about how this experience helped their faith. Gaius, Antichicus, and Secundus. Imagine them talking, whoa, did you see that? Paul goes down and he picks him up and he comes back to life. And how they saw the gospel in action among the people in Troas and the impact that this amazing miracle had on those people. And they could head into the future, and we already know from later on in the chapter, we know where Paul's going. Paul's going to Jerusalem, and he wants to get to Rome. As they headed into the future, you can imagine they did it with renewed confidence in the value of following Jesus. But how does the story help us? That's the key question. And I think it moves us in two directions simultaneously. First of all, it takes, uh, Eutychus takes us back in the Bible to other people who were raised from the dead. By my count, there are nine. Elijah, a young boy in 1 Kings. Elisha, a young boy in 2 Kings. Jesus, Jairus' daughter. Uh, Jesus raises Lazarus. Peter raises Dorcas. Believers in Lystra, uh, they see Paul come back to life. And now here's Paul with Eutychus. And of course, the resurrection of all resurrections is God raised Jesus from the dead. God is able to raise the dead. So the first thing that Eutychus does is it takes us, he takes us back in Bible history to other examples. The other thing that Eutychus does, it seems to me, is he takes us ahead to a great resurrection that's before all of God's people. Paul explains it like this in 1 Thessalonians. He says, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, with them, God will bring those who are asleep in Jesus. And then he says, we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Is the great resurrection in your future? If you belong to Jesus, it most certainly is. And your decaying body will be raised to new life, and you'll be given a new body. 
So John tells us in the book of Revelation, a time is coming in a new heaven and a new earth. No more tears, no more sorrow, nor more, nor, no more sighing, nor any more crying. All these former things are passed away. Did you ever hear of William Dawson? He's a lyricist. Wrote in the mid-20th century. And one of the songs that he wrote is entitled, In That Great Getting Up Morning. You know it? In that great getting up morning, fare ye well, fare ye well. In that great getting up morning, fare ye well. He's talking about the resurrection. And he's looking forward to it with anticipation. He says... There's a better day a coming. Fare ye well. Fare ye well. Good news. Chariots a coming. Fare ye well. Fare ye well. I'm so glad chariots are coming, he says. Don't want to miss them. Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus today? There's that future for you. Chariots are coming. There's a new day a coming. Jesus has conquered death in his resurrection. And so Jesus is our source of hope, even as we stare death in the face. Lord, thank you for your word. Bless it to us, we pray. Help us to be people who remember Eutychus with great confidence that you are able to raise the dead and we will one day see you face to face. So as we bump along and encounter things that we never expected, that take us to places we never imagined. Help us, we pray, to be filled with hope that you are good, you have a good plan for us. We ask these mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to sing one more song, and it is numbered... 57. 57. Number 57.